All right, my name is Ben Lowe, pastors here at Grace. So glad to be here and to bring you God's Word. I'm asking this question this morning. What happens when priests go bad? What happens when pastors go bad? Just some recent statistics. This is from Scientific America. Clergy rank at the bottom of people that people trust to give them accurate information. Merry Christmas to me. Pew Research. Only 37% of people view clergy in a positive light. Recent Gallup poll. Views on honesty and ethics among clergy have hit an all-time low. And so to stand up here as a clergy person and pastor, I know that more than half of you are suspicious of me. And it might surprise you that when I hear people speak of Jesus, I am suspicious of them too, if I don't know them. I also know that when I ask the question, what happens when priests or pastors go bad, that you have pastors that come to mind. Some of you have been in the church. You've known pastors. Think of the pastors you've known. Some of them have been good. Some of them have been bad. If you are not a Christian or you're recovering from a wound and you're visiting here with great risk, Encourage the reason why it's risky and courageous is probably because you've experienced someone with spiritual authority in your life who has abused that authority. Leadership and authority, spiritual leadership and spiritual authority is a sacred trust between God and His people. God entrusting us, you too, to rightly represent him before the world. Today's text is about a group of leaders who break that trust. They misrepresent God and they hurt people. And it's a story about God's response to those leaders and his faithful commitment to raise up new leaders who would reflect what is in his heart and what is in his soul and his mind. Renewal doesn't begin outside the church. It begins inside. What happens when priests go bad? That's what we're going to talk about. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and goodness. This is a sobering and hard message. It's heavy, but in it we see your commitment to your church, your commitment to people who have been hurt and scarred by your church, and we get to remember that judgment begins with the house of God, and we need to stop pointing fingers on the outside. We need to, we need to clean our own house. And that is where renewal begins. And so would you, by your Spirit, Jesus, help us to remember these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 
What happens when pastors go bad? First thing we learn is that people get hurt and worship gets hard. Verse 12, now the sons of Eli were, what's the word there? Worthless men. They did not know the Lord. So here we meet Eli's two sons. These are priests in a place called Shiloh. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. We learned that a couple of weeks ago. And now we learn about their character. And it says that they are worthless men. The language in the Hebrew is literally they are sons of Belial. And Belial is the name of a demon. The name of a pagan god. In essence, what the text is saying is that these spiritual leaders who were supposed to be serving and representing God were really serving demons by the way that they were acting. The last thing that we learn is the most sad and revealing. They didn't know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. There's people in church who don't know the Lord. They may know about the Lord, but when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's talking about intimacy, relationship, friendship, love. In this way, these men knew nothing of the Lord. That is the root of the problem. And given that root, people who don't know the Lord we would expect to find rotten fruit. And that is exactly what we find. Verse 13. The customs of the priest with the people was that when anyone offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hands, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And so to understand the priest's offense, you need to understand the sacrificial system. Priests, like other people, did not own land in Israel, and there were no hy-vees or russes. You got food by growing your own food. But the priests couldn't grow their own food. And so God had made provision for them in his law that when people came to bring their sacrifices, certain parts of the sacrifices went to the Lord, the fat, the best parts. Certain parts, the breast and the thigh, went to the priests so they could feed themselves and their families. And the rest, in a fellowship offering, was boiled and then was eaten by the people in what was a symbolic meal of fellowship between them and God. And what we learn here is that the the priest's first offense is against the people because they were entitled to the breast and the right thigh But Hophni and Phinehas and the thugs that they employed were going around and they were just taking anything that they could get. They had this three-pronged fork in what, it's kind of funny, it's like an evil form of fondue. They would just go around and like, just take whatever they wanted to out of the pots. Didn't matter what it was. And then we, that wasn't all. Verse 15. 
Moreover, it says, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give me the, I imagine this is what it sounds like, give me the meat for the priest to roast, and he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, the fat belongs to the Lord, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. So, there's more to their crimes. They are not just robbing people. They are robbing God. The fat of the animal was the Lord's portion. But Hophni and Phineas insisted on taking the meat with the fat steel on it. Stealing the best part. They were wrong and the people knew that they were wrong. And the response of the priests and their thugs was, give us the meat or we're going to beat you up. And so it was this environment of extreme abuse of spiritual power. And not more than that, later on in the text we're going to learn that they were using their position to abuse and seduce women into sexual relationship with them. They were sexually abusing women at the temple. Abusing their power and their position. Spiritual leadership misusing money, sex, and power. Some things never change. And I don't say that flippantly. Part of me just wants to stop and hand out candles and just light them for each person and story in here of those who have been harmed or hurt by people who are supposed to represent God. God's evaluation of this is clear and severe. Verse 17. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. Now get this. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now the men here, it isn't talking about the priests and their thugs. When the word men is used, this word throughout the passage, it's referring to the people coming to give their sacrifices. And so what it's saying is that the men and women who had to endure the abuse of these pastors no longer wanted to come to worship. They looked at the sacrifices with contempt, began to see public worship as a contemptible thing. They didn't want to offer their sacrifices anymore. And holy cow, who could blame them? These were supposed to be the people who were supposed to mediate between God and men. And they were making the gap wider. They were going to the temple to confess sin, not to have sin committed against them. When when priests go bad, people get hurt. And worship is hard. Scores of people who have spent years And maybe decades far from God because something that has happened to them in in church 
a leader used and abused or deeply wounded them, so hurt them and just messed up their view of God. And they've turned and wandered from God. And it often takes years to sort out. In all the midst of that pain and abuse, maybe that's your story. If that's true, I, take, I hope you take some measure of hope in God's response. Because his response is both to raise up new leaders and to tear the old system down. First, to raise up new leaders. Verses 18 and 19. Samuel was ministering. Ah, finally, someone ministering. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Oh, this is a very dark chapter, but against this very dark backdrop of these men and their abuse, there are these little shafts of light that penetrate through the darkness. And it's all of these little stories about Samuel that you'll find kind of interspersed and sprinkled in. In fact, the whole text moves back and forth between descriptions of Eli and the sin and descriptions of Samuel ministering and growing and serving back and forth between Eli and his sons and Hannah and Samuel. And it forces this comparison. The men were sinning. He was serving. Where was Eli when his sons were doing all this? They were a wall. But look at faithful Hannah. Here is a faithful mother on her game. Look at these little lights shining. And through these little lights, God is going to make a big change happen. It's like in the middle of this text, God is whispering to us, don't forget Samuel. See how Samuel is serving. And this is God's way, providing quietly for the next moment of redemption in the middle of a dark Season. Samuel is a little light shining in this passage, giving witness to God's love and commitment. A couple of details come out. He's wearing a, a, a linen ephod, and that's the garment of a priest. He's probably six years old at this time, and he's wearing, like you can imagine, a little clerical collar. Uh, The simple garment of a priest, the boy shining in the darkness, it speaks to Hannah's hope that God is raising up a new priest in her son Samuel. Even as a boy, he's marked out to be the priest who's going to call people back to God. And his mom, she's awesome. She would make him this little robe and take it to him each year. And she this wasn't something she got at Old Navy or Target. She made it. For him. It's a sign of her care, you see, the tenderness of it. She made him a little robe. We're to feel the humanity and the love. God is raising up leaders, they are being cared for. It may not look like much, you may have to squint to see it, but here is a light. Shining in the darkness against overwhelming odds, 
a son is born. A child is given. And it starts small and ordinary, like a little mustard seed, and it's going to grow. And these acts of faithfulness are going to multiply and ultimately change the course of a nation. In verse 20 and 21, we're told that God honors Hannah for her faithfulness. And the final verse says this, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. In other words, all is not lost. The light is there, growing and shining. When priests go bad, God raises up new leaders. He also tears down the old regime. Verses 22 through 25. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate before him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they will not but they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So now we're back to Eli, and we're told that he's old. Samuel's growing. Eli is old. And perhaps that we're supposed to just see that he's beyond his years of effectiveness. Perhaps we're just to recognize that his regime's about to end. But Eli hears and knows what his sons are doing, and he offers this mild rebuke, and his sons laugh him off. And the point here is that it's too little too late. Eli had the power to remove his sons, but not the will. When pastors go bad, they should be removed, and churches should have the will to do them, even if they are beloved and respected. It would have been hard to throw his sons out. But sometimes true love has to do hard things, has to say hard things. And a false love, it's a false love that refuses to say hard things. We can equate niceness with love. We don't always seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. Eli didn't do what he had to do. And as a result, his time is about to come to an end. But look, verse 26, the light is shining. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. God had lost favor amongst the people because of the priests, but now because of Samuel, both favor with God and neighbor was growing. The light was growing. Darkness is fading. Let's take down the old regime, 27 and 28. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your fathers when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? 
Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by father for the people of Israel. So here's a man of God, which is code word for prophet in the Old Testament, an unnamed prophet. And when a prophet comes and knocks on your door, it's not good news. They're not there to say that you've won the Reader's Digest sweepstakes. Is that still a thing? Good. It's not the Amazon lady here to give you a present. It is almost always bad news. And he's going and saying, Eli, I chose your family. I gave them the great honor of serving me, of being mediators between a holy God and sinful people. It was a high and holy calling. Eli, it was a sacred trust. Verse 29. Why then did you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. If this is, this is so sacred, and look how you've treated the sacrifices, look how you've treated the people. And the prophet identifies Eli's sin as honoring his sons above the Lord. By allowing them to continue to do what they were doing. And the text also seems to suggest that Eli had enjoyed the benefits of his son's disobedience. That he had grown fat over eating the meat that had been stolen and wrongly taken. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, this isn't going to be good. The God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house. Verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please put me in one of the priests' place that I may eat a morsel of bread. Those who had grown fat are now begging for food. Little biblical poetic justice. Merry Christmas. So he goes on to describe the judgment that's going to fall upon Eli and his family. And remember, the stuff that they had done was really bad. And they were not repentant. 
And so he lists all the sadness and grief and judgment that will come upon the family as a result. And the sign will be that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day. And we will soon see that that will come to pass. And then there is this very interesting statement that he is raising up a new and faithful priest. One who will do according to what is in God's heart and mind. It's a very unusual what God wants from his leaders. He wants them to be faithful, to be true to what is in his heart and mind. And it's what, that's what 1 Samuel is about. It's just about driving us to a place where a new king is anointed in David, one we know as a man after God's own heart. But he too fails. He too abuses his power. So, that can't be the end of the story. God wants a faithful leader who will represent his heart and mind. And so we have to look forward to another child who will be born. This time it's God with skin on made me think of Isaiah chapter 9 when it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government or the leadership shall be on his shoulders. And this is his character. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, And of the increase of the government, the authority, and his peace will have no end. And the boy is born of Mary and grows. And and it's so awesome. In Luke 2, verse 52, you know, we get this, we get something said about Jesus. It says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with man. It's an exact quote of what was said about Samuel. It's a reminder that Samuel and David, all these individuals are just shadows of a great high priest and just leader who will come to be the ultimate mediator between God and man. Samuel's just a picture of the ultimate priest to come who will bring the ultimate salvation, the world's true king and priest who will tear down finally all of the false and abusive systems of this world and a kingdom of peace. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness overcome it. A few words of application. What do we take away from this? We need to come to terms with the mess inside the church. I thought about the quote. I don't know where it comes from. We've met the enemy and it is us. It humbles the church. We hear stories of church abuse. And if we haven't been the victims, it's, it's tempting to respond to them with a distant judgment. As if we're not capable of that ourselves. But it's dangerous to always view 
the problem of power in the church out there, in those mega churches. Man, it's those celebrity pastors. It's those denominations lacking our polity and accountability. If our contemplation of stories of pastoral failure cuts no deeper than just pointing fingers, we have missed an invitation from the Lord. I believe that God is inviting the church in North America to pray wholeheartedly, corporately, and personally this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The church at this point in history is quick to point out the sins of others. We are so quick and grumpy about what's going on in culture. But the church is so good at quietly covering up the sins in our own lives trying to protect our own spiritual reputations. And what the Lord would say is, woe to you. Woe to you, pastors and elders, who judge others. And you can't take the log out of your own eye. You can't clean up your own mess. And so the invitation is to first humble ourselves and to ask hard questions about what's going on in here, what's going on up here. You don't think I was cowering in my boots? All week long? Holy cow, I wanted to work at Starbucks this week and just leave the whole thing. But listen, for the victims of abuse, hurt by the church and its leaders, this text says God sees you. The lion of the tribe of Judah will not always be passive, he cares. He's upset about what's occurred. He understands. And long before you and I criticized the church, God did. In passages like this and many others. And he finally did it in his son when he came into the temple and cracked a whip to rid the church of its charlatans and hucksters and bullies. We look. We look and we see darkness But I think this text would also say, it's not all dark. Through this text, there shines a light in the middle of all this abuse of power. And it happens in little people like Samuel. Samuel was there growing. It it wasn't just the darkness. There were these little lights. God's heart was not reflected in the actions of Phineas and Hophni, but present in the love of Hannah present in the humble service of Samuel, God differentiates himself from the abuse. And we must differentiate God from abusive men and structures. Don't look at the celebrity pastors. We live in a day where the church gets a lot of bad press and gets, deserves a lot of the bad press it gets, but it doesn't tell the whole story. I said this a couple of months ago. For every narcissistic and unfit pastor, there are 800 grandmas and Hannahs and faithful men and women who are so faithful to him. And we have to look 
for where the light is shining. And it's usually not up here. It's out there in a thousand different ways. Stephen Gould once wrote in an op-ed after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, he said this. It's important. It's an, I love this quote. He said, good and kind people outnumber all others by a thousand to one. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction, not in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts of evil. Um, let me say it again. The tragedy of human history lies in the enormous potential for destruction in rare acts of evil, not in the high frequency of evil people. Complex systems can only be built step by step, where destruction requires but an instant. Thus, in what I call the great asymmetry, every spectacular incident of evil will be balanced by 10,000 acts of kindness, too often unnoted and invisible as the ordinary efforts of a vast majority. What I am saying is that we have a duty, almost a holy responsibility to record in honor the victorious weight of all the little innumerable kindnesses. When an unprecedented act of evil so threatens to distort our picture of the church or of God. And finally, we just look to Jesus. Jesus is our true north. Jesus is God with skin on. Jesus is the faithful high priest. Jesus is holiness, righteousness, peace. Jesus tears down the old systems. Jesus advocates for the poor. Jesus honors women. Jesus preaches truth even when it's hard. And here's the thing, Jesus loves you. And he loves me. And I'm glad he does. Let me pray. (laughs) Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this message. It is sobering. Would you use it to draw us to you and to sanctify our hearts, minds, and lives in Christ. For anyone who has experienced hurt or abuse at the hands of the church, I hope that they would sense your eyes on them, you next to them as their fierce advocate, the one who loves and knows. And Lord, I thank you for all the little lights in this room. May our lights shine bright in a dark world. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.